0: This is not just an old person's disease, and that's the mistake people are making. And what we're going to find is if we don't find solutions quickly, the age is going to get younger and younger and younger.
1: Hi, I'm
2: Bobby and I'm her husband Mike.
1: And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years, and since then, I've become a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator.
2: And I was a secondary caregiver for my father, and since that time, I've become a certified caregiver advocate. Here we're going to focus on the caregiver. We're going to offer our practical insights and share some emotional support. Maybe we'll even share a few laughs along the way because we all know that laughing is, in fact, the best medicine.
1: And don't forget the wine, Mike.
2: Nope, I'll never forget the wine.
1: So, Mike, we both mentioned in the intro that we're passionate about offering guidance through the heavy haze of dementia. And at least in my part, it started... Um, after taking care of your dad and and being connected in the caregiving world and hearing people say, I wish somebody would talk about what it's really like um, to be a caregiver. And even now, so many caregivers say, if you haven't done it, you cannot understand it. So this is my drive to become an educator and to go out into the world and speak at caregiver conferences and do what I could to educate people as soon as possible about the various types of dementia and how to deal with dementia behaviors.
2: Yeah, and in your quest to help people, you actually sat down and wrote your first book on caregiving called Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver so that the caregivers would know what it's really like and they would understand that what they're going through is actually normal.
1: And the fact what happened was when your dad came to live with us, neither one of us knew knew what we were walking into. And that is so true of so many people that think, well, mom or dad or husband or grandma is having trouble remembering um, that that's what dementia is, and it's so much more than that.
2: Yes, and that's why today we're going to have a researcher as part of the show.
1: So that brings us to today's guest who is a medical doctor working in the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. He is devoted to using his medical expertise to make a difference for those with dementia as a way to honor the memory of his mother who passed away over 10 years ago from the disease. He is also an international keynote speaker for dementia and an international authority in new ways of looking at the disease. Please welcome to our show Dr. Philip McMillan.
2: Good morning, Doctor.
0: Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. And wonderful hearing about the podcast and the difference it makes for others. I think that's just tremendous.
1: It was a delight to meet with you and sit down with Mike and have dinner with you at the, at the International Conference in, in Toronto. But during the conference itself, when you were speaking, I literally sat up and took notice when you started talking about a different way to look at the causes of dementia um, I was absolutely fascinated and, and, and thrilled to have the opportunity to get to meet you. And I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from you today. When we talked to you earlier in the week, you mentioned, you know, that was six months ago and there's been some advances and new knowledge coming out since then. So how about sharing with us?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I think the main thing that I started from and when I started to do my research many years ago I approached dementia from a different angle from most of the work that is being done. And so because Alzheimer's is our most common form of dementia, all of the funding and the research largely is focused on it. My question was always a very simple question. We have to be able to find a theory that unifies all of the presentations of dementia. Because even though in Alzheimer's disease, there are two major proteins that we perceive are causing the problems, amyloid and tau. Now, the problem is is that that doesn't exist in most of the other forms of dementia. And so whilst we are focusing our research on it, we will not understand the disease by only looking at one type. And so I started from a different angle. My aim was to try and unify the theory of dementia where every single condition could be explained by that theory. So it's for uh, listeners who don't quite understand some of the other forms of dementia. So Alzheimer's is the most common. You have vascular dementia. You have frontotemporal dementia. You have lewy dementia. You have dementia caused by neurosyphilis have dementia caused by Huntington's, you have dementia caused, caused by multiple sclerosis, you have dementia associated with HIV, you have dementia associated with alcoholics. So you have this whole spectrum of diseases, not, in, not to exclude things like uh, mad cow disease, which also causes dementia, and you have this whole spectrum of diseases that cannot be explained by the research that we're doing. And so my aim was to look for a way that we could understand the disease pathologically. So I use the example when I think of dementia. I compare it to another disease, the the disease of the brain, which is Parkinson's. Now, Parkinson's disease, whilst we haven't got a cure for it, we have multiple ways of managing it to reduce the symptoms of patients. And that's simply because we know exactly where in the brain it's located and we know what kind of neurons to target and therefore what kind of medication to give. And so we have that understanding for Parkinson's, but we don't have it for dementia. And my feeling is that without that understanding, it would be virtually impossible to come up with solutions.
1: I remember you saying during your presentation that when we find the cause. It'll be simple. Everything is difficult until you find the answer, and then it's easy. And that's one of the things that really spoke to me, because it just it just makes sense.
0: Yes, and, and that point of the simplicity of, of medicine, I think, is a really, really important point. And so what I'll do to explain that concept is I'm going to take a condition that is well-known to everybody to show you what happens if you don't look at it properly. And the example is diabetes. So in diabetes, you would find that the person was very tired and they were passing a lot of urine and they were dehydrated. You then notice that the urine has a lot of sugar or glucose in it. And you would think, well, that must be the disease. You know, there's a lot of glucose in the urine. Why don't we come up with drugs to stop that? But then you would also notice beyond it that there's a lot of glucose in the blood. And you say, oh, that must be the disease. You have high glucose in the blood, high glucose in the urine. And so, therefore, that's where the disease is located. But it's not. Then you would also notice that the insulin levels are very low. And you would think that, oh, the insulin levels being low is the cause of the disease. You are closer, but you're still not there until you have identified the beta cells in the pancreas where the insulin is produced. And so oftentimes, if you're looking at a disease and it seems complicated, it's because you haven't followed it up line. And that's what I mean in terms of dementia is that because we're focusing towards the end of the disease, it appears complicated. But when you reach up the line, you're always going to find that there is usually one specific cause for all of the symptoms.
2: That's a a fascinating chain of events that you just put out. I'm sitting here going, huh, Never made the connection. But now again,
1: you know why I sat up and paid attention when, <laughs> when Philip started talking. Um, it, it, it makes perfect sense.
2: Yes, it does. You had mentioned earlier um, when you started uh, about dementia caused by alcoholism. Yes. Yeah. It raised the question of, you know, the military members having PTSD. Would that also? Yes. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: So. What we are drift into is where I am today with regards to my understanding of dementia. This is why when, when I met you about six months ago, or a little bit more than six months ago, I had a specific line of thinking, but as you continue to research, the more you see, the more you see. The more you know, the more you know, and that's what happened. And so... I had just recently put what I consider a very important post on LinkedIn, and that's just in the past week, where I think I'm trying to put forward the theory that I have identified the dementia neuron.
1: Oh, wow. So the wow.
0: principle that I'm saying is is that I'm trying to localize the disease, because without localizing it, you can't solve it. And so... What I found was that when you look at dementia, the brain is very, very specific in what it does. And because a lot of my work is around stroke disease, I see that presentation all the time. So a patient will have what we call a mini stroke. And when it happens to a specific area of the brain, the symptoms are very, very specific. So they may have weakness of their arm, weakness of a leg, or it may just be numbness of the arm or the leg or the face. Or they may have something like their speech goes and mm-hmm. they speak gobbledygook, and that's very, very specific because of how the brain operates. Every part does a very specific role. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at dementia, the person can speak, They can hear, they can touch, they can move. And what that means is that you have taken out the majority of the cerebral cortex because that's where most of that stuff is done. So then where are the parts that deal with the orientation, the confusion, and the emotional responses? And that's where we look at a part of the brain that we know is is affected in dementia quite early. It's called the the cingulate gyrus. It's just an area that is just above where both hemispheres connect. We call that the corpus callosum. It's just a a tract of a lot of of fibers going between both sides of the brain. And just above it, on the inside of the brain, is an area that is connected with our limbic system. Hmm. And this is about... Emotional responses. And the, uh, the best way of, of, of explaining how it, it could work is if you imagine you're walking in a crowd of people in a place where you don't really know anyone. So, in effect, you're seeing lots of people coming by you. And what your brain is doing is that for every face that passes, it's checking to see if it recognizes it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't trigger anything. Then someone comes along who you actually know. And when you visualize them, it then sends a trigger into the limbic system, which brings up the emotional memory. And that's where you get the, wow, wow, great to see you. And literally that happens immediately. And that limbic system then coordinates all of the emotional responses, even around things that you're afraid of, the excitement all of that is happening in that area of the brain so i then found that in about 1926 a very important neuron was noticed by a researcher called von economo and they called the neurons the von economo neurons and what he found is that these neurons were very large And it was unusual that they thought it was part of a disease, but it wasn't. It was a normal part of the brain. And more importantly, these neurons are only in existence in a few animals. So elephants, killer whales, dolphins, as well as certain higher-functioning apes as well. And it seems to be about that ability for the social connection to occur. So most other animals don't have these neurons. And the, the more I looked at it, what I realized that they probably are is effectively pretty big cables. So if you imagine a copper wire versus a big um, fiber optic cable, these neurons, because of their size, are able to connect different parts of the brain and create, create emotions and thoughts that couldn't be done with just normal neurons. Now, the interesting thing about these neurons is that they use a lot of energy because they're so big and they fire so much around. And this area of the brain, what we call the default mode network, works all the time, whether you're awake or you're asleep. So it's always going. And so it's part of the dreams, part of your, your general thoughts when you're relaxed. And so it's there working all the time. So it's using overall a lot of energy. Dementia, from the research that I've found, is essentially going to be a disease that takes out the powerhouse in the neurons called mitochondria. So I'm delving into some pretty deep stuff. So I'm trying to take you along with me. I'm trying to explain what yeah. each one of these things is without getting you confused. Oh no, so, my head's spinning. Uh, the way that, yeah, the way that I think of mitochondria, uh, they're like um, they're like generators. The fuel that you put in them is glucose. So in order for the brain to get all the energy it needs, it primarily uses glucose and it puts it through these generators and they produce lots of energy to feed all the work that the brain is doing. Now, the interesting thing in all the forms of dementia is that we have found that the glucose use drops off. And that's one of the earliest features that you will see when we do the PET scan. So it looks at glucose update. and this is even before the person has any obvious symptoms.
1: Um, can I interrupt just for a second? Mm-hmm. You, what you're talking about kind of generated a question yes. in me. Um, in some forms of dementia, in 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 also later in stages of the disease. Very often people with dementia crave sweets. Could that be a direct result of what you're talking about now, about the use of glucose?
0: Not quite. Um, that is something that does happen. But truthfully, that's more to do with the fact that the sense of smell is taken out in dementia. Mm. And so what happens is without a sense of smell, you can't differentiate taste, complex taste, easily. And the only things that he can therefore enjoy are quite specific: sweet, salty, bitter, or sour. Huh. And so we tend to go for sweet.
1: No, oh, please excuse the interruption, but you know, that just popped into my head. No, no,
0: no, no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine.
2: Well, i i also have I also have a question since you're talking about the glucose. Yeah, is it's my understanding that they're considering putting diabetes under the dementia umbrella, and that kind of connects those dots?
0: Yes, yes. So part of the thought is that um, dementia is what we call type 3 diabetes. Uh And the reason they're thinking that is because it seems as though in dementia there's a problem with the brain utilizing glucose. So on the surface that may appear to make sense. But in truth, when you actually go under the surface of this, what you will find is that it's different in diabetes in that the problem with glucose is not so much glucose use, but glucose storage. In dementia, the brain doesn't tend to store much glucose. It only uses it. And so when you see reduced glucose in the brain, it means it's not able to put it through the generator to produce energy. Uh. And so, the fundamental part of dementia is likely to be that these generators, what we call mitochondria, are being affected by the high levels of protein in the brain. And it doesn't matter what protein is elevated. This is why in Alzheimer's, the protein is amyloid. But in Huntington's, the protein is Huntington, you know, or in um, multiple sclerosis and are proteins elevated in the brain as well. And in effect, it just clogs up these generators, and then they can't produce energy. And so what then happens is that the neurons that use the most energy become the most vulnerable. That's these von economo neurons, and I call them the dimension neurons. And because they are unable to do that connection between all the parts of the brain, it then takes out our ability to do that social engagement that is such a critical part of the human existence.
2: One of the things that um, Bobby and I became aware of, I guess maybe about a year ago, is that the drug companies here in the United States were cutting back on the research because they found no profit in it. Are you finding that to be systemic around the world?
0: yes yeah, so this is this is where the big challenges exist in terms of dementia, because the drug companies want to find a drug that will effectively whichever company found it would become the most successful company in the world, right because there are so many people who are affected that if you had a drug, it would be worth a fortune, so that has always been the attraction. To the drug companies and the investors. But what has happened is that our primary focus of research has been amyloid and removing amyloid or dealing with amyloid in the brain. And the big studies, even when they have removed the amyloid, they haven't seen any improvement in the function of the patient, Right. and that's the trouble. So billions of dollars have been put into dementia research and the truth is, is that the big drug companies are, in effect, operated by shareholders. And if you are not getting return on investment, you don't want to continue down this line. And so all of the big companies are largely out of the dementia arena. The last one is Biogen, which has a drug aducanumab. But the truth is, is that the, the, the studies don't look strong enough for it to even continue. And so they are still in the process of trying to assess whether or not it's worthwhile doing further trials with this drug to try and find at least one drug that can make a difference for dementia.
1: So the bottom line at this point is there's nothing that works at the present time. And if we continue looking down the same path, we're not going to find the answer, which is why we need somebody like you out there looking at it from a different point of view.
0: Yes. So there's an important point about this. And part of what I have been doing is I have been expecting this failure in the context of finding a drug that's going to solve dementia. And the reason is actually very, very simple. The brain is equivalent to a baby. It is not a part of our body. And it's a really important, really simple concept to grasp. So, just in the same way that a baby is connected in the womb by a placenta, the brain is connected to the body with a blood-brain barrier. Nothing mm-hmm. gets it. And so, when you try and develop a drug, it's kind of like trying to get a drug that would treat a baby in the womb. It's very difficult because of the placental barrier, and it's the same that exists with the brain in the blood-brain barrier. So... The reason why, therefore, it's so hard to find a drug is because the blood-brain barrier keeps everything out. Your only way of approaching the brain is to first trust it. The brain is literally an organism on its own. Everything that it needs, it can do. All you need to do is give it the right nutrients and not damage it, if that makes any sense. Oh, it, it makes. So, sense. if you give if you give the brain what it needs, it fixes itself. And as long as you are not taking anything that is doing damage to the brain, and that's where when we we talk about things like alcoholic dementia, that's an example of where the alcohol becomes a toxin because it's in such high doses, and over time it does permanent damage to the brain.
1: Now, let me ask you this. Yeah, you know, a number of people consider that dementia is an old person's disease. That the older you get, the better the chance that you're going to get it. Yeah, but I also believe that there's there's a heavy environmental component that, and that's why we're seeing early onset. And there's there's so many chemicals in in our food and in in our grass, and and we put different lotions and scents and deodorants on our bodies, things that people didn't use years, years ago. And I, I have to think that that is having an effect on us. Do you agree?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You just have to look at the trajectory of the disease. You know, um, technically in 1905, when Auguste de Terre in Frankfurt had the disease, that's when Alois Alzheimer found it, he hadn't seen it before. You know, she was 51 years old. He had never seen a case like it before. We currently have, what, 46 million people across the world. And say, for instance, in the UK, where we have about maybe 850,000 people with dementia, 42,000 people are below the age of 65. And so what that indicates is that this is not just an old person's disease and that's the mistake people are making and what we're going to find is if we don't find solutions quickly the age is going to get younger and younger and younger
1: that's that's what scares me and that's why I talk a lot about teaching young people you know young adults working age adults what they need to know now because it's not going to be their mother their father their their grandmother it's going to be their spouse their brother their sister even themselves that's right yeah and I have yeah. a. You mentioned a couple of times about mitochondria, and yeah, I have a little bit of knowledge that kind of makes me dangerous on a number of issues. And you hear about yeah. mitochondrial DNA, which is directly from the mother. Um, if mitochondria yeah. is affected, is that one of the reasons why dementia is more common in women?
0: Okay, oh, I, I, I can see the logic there. <laughs> yes, that's where it gets dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so women are actually a really big concern because the majority of people with dementia are women. And um, uh, some time ago, I'd, I'd done some focus on this because I was trying to understand why women were more affected. And the, the basics of it is to do with hormones. Um, Unlike men where they produce hormones and it gradually tails off with testosterone over their lifetime, in women, they tend to have this pretty sudden drop-off at, you know, around menopause. Yes. Now, um, and that's because the ovaries are no longer producing estrogen. Now, the women still continue to produce estrogen but it comes from other sources like uh, the fat and the bones and so on. And so what it means is that if there is anything environmental that impacts on those areas, women's estrogen levels will be lower than expected. And the estrogen, just like the testosterone, is neuroprotective. It protects the brain. And so when you have lower levels, the brain is not as well protected.
1: So you mentioned the paper that you um, have up on LinkedIn and some information on, you know, where your research is taking you. Can you share a little bit of that with our listeners? Because I know I'm fascinated and I imagine they would be too. Yes.
0: Yeah, so, uh, well, they, where I'm trying to go, or I shouldn't say trying, where I am going, is to do with reversal. I want Prevention and reversal, but I've recognized that if you only aim for prevention, you're less likely to be successful. If you can reverse a disease, you can prevent it. And so I am going for reversal. And it's not easy, but I believe that with an understanding of how the brain works and a recognition of what it needs will allow you to develop a protocol that will make a difference to the brain. So my starting point is to focus on persons who have dementia and sequentially go through the steps to try and see if you can help the body to support the brain. The problem is is that it's not straightforward in that there's no simple thing you give somebody. It's very dependent on the person and where they are in their health journey. And so the the sense thinking that I do is one. Make sure that there is nothing obvious that needs to be treated, you know. So whatever condition somebody has, you fix that first. Whether they're hypertensive, if they're diabetic, make sure it's well controlled. If they're anemic because with iron, you give them iron. If whatever problems they've got, you fix it first. Then you focus on the bowels. Now this may seem strange, but you can't apply nutrition if your bowels are a problem. And so therefore, the next stage is to deal with that and to make sure that if there are any chronic issues, those are dealt with. And then the third stage is about the nutrition and the specific nutrition that the brain actually needs. And as I said before, I treat the brain like a baby. You give it exactly what it needs, and there's some very specific things that may help the brain, but it varies from person to person. And so you literally almost need a very specific protocol that somebody can follow for a number of months. And absolutely, I've started to see the difference in just very simple instructions to patients, and you can see the impact that it can have on their cognitive function.
2: As as we get ready to wrap up this uh, podcast, um, one of the things uh would like to ask, well, two things. One is, um, your research team or is it you uh just doing the research yourself or do you have a team and what what size is the team? <laughs> and
0: yes. I, I laughed because I thought to myself, "Wow, it would be great if I had a team. No, this is just me. <laughs> <laughs> just me working in the evenings, looking at the research, pulling the stuff together. Uh, Can you imagine how much more I could do if I had a team?
2: (laughs) (laughs) The other question is, uh, if our listeners want to follow your research and the results of your research, how would they do that?
0: So there are two things. There are a number of things that actually are relevant. Usually most of the heavyweight stuff that I put out will be on uh, LinkedIn. But... I am also in the process of trying to develop a very simple but unique concept called dementia crowd research. And it's basically a very simple thing, is that there's so many carers and persons who have dementia, yet we don't have any simple data on them. And so my idea was simple: build a platform where people can regularly put data then once enough people put data about what's going on, you see patterns and you start to understand some of the practicalities of the disease. And so it's, it's a simple concept. Um, truthfully, I've, I've probably not had as much time to focus on it as I should, but I'm hoping to be able to do that soon. And the final part of the puzzle is a book that is called Dementia Simplified, in order to try and see if I can explain more about the concept.
2: Well, we will put links to that on the RogerThat.show website for our listeners who want to follow and keep up with your research. And I am very thankful that you sat down with us today. Uh, You certainly had my head spin a little bit, but that's okay.
1: And thank you so much, Philip, for being with us and sharing what's going on and the work that you're doing. And I appreciate what you had to say about the work I am doing and trying to educate younger people about this and how important that is. And we mentioned the tsunami that's not only headed our way, it's it's imminent.
0: That's right.
1: Of all the new cases. Yeah. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining us.
2: And we wish you continued success.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Wow, having Dr. McMillan on the show um, was an exercise in trying to put your brain where his brain is, um, his being 40, 50 pounds, mine being 17, 18 ounces.
1: Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom line is what we can do while we're waiting for the researchers to find a way to reverse it or treat it
2: right.
1: is to take care of ourselves, and that means to go to the doctor regularly. Uh, watch your diet, get your colonoscopy, Mm -hmm. um, take as good a care of your body as you possibly can because your body nourishes your brain and your brain controls your body. So they're they're absolutely interconnected and we can't just sit back and wait for the researchers to deal with this. We have to take all the steps we can leading up to that and see to it that we take care of ourselves in the best possible way.
2: Absolutely.
1: You can find more information about Dr. McMillan on our website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby,
2: And I'm Mike.
1: And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
2: So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review. Reviews are very helpful. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help, or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, or if you just want to say hi. Please do. To find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's roger, R O D G E R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org.
1: Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.